Father, they say that home is where the heart is. And I pray that our home will be here in your presence, open to you, led by your Spirit, worshipping our Lord Jesus Christ. May we find peace and rest and inspiration here. Amen. Neil's going to give us our announcements. What's the second collection, Neil? Mill Day. What's, what's the real second collection? <laughs> Morning, all. Um, a really warm welcome to you all. Um, lots of visitors this morning, so uh, I'll welcome you. If I miss anybody, I'm really sorry. Um, it's great to see uh, Richard Benson from Warsaw. Uh, it's great to see a big clan of Webons. Um, Emma, welcome. Great to see Nigel here. Uh, great to see Jude just walked in. And Chris and Hannah, welcome. Chris is um, going to be exhorting shortly. And this is from Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Jack is making good progress um, and has now been walking short distances outside his house with the aid of crutches. Um, the visiting rotor for Jack this week is, is fairly empty, so please will you have a look at that um, if you're able and pick a slot um, and let Andrew know. Um, when you're able to go to avoid duplication um, of visitors on the rotor. Uh, but Andrew says he's away from Tuesday till Friday this week, so if you can have a look before then, in the next day or two, and let Andrew know, that would be really, really helpful. Um, and the only other bit of care news we've had is uh, an email this morning from Rob Mills, which I will read to you in case you haven't seen it. Hi everyone, it's Rob here. I've just recovered from an infection that I've had for six weeks. Um, I've had, I have a huge hernia on my stomach for which I am on very strong painkillers. Um, I miss you all, but I can't sit for more than half an hour on any chairs until I have my operation, which could be week commencing 20th of April. So that's where Rob is. That's what he's suffering with at the moment. Um, uh, perhaps we could pray for Rob uh, in a moment. That's all, thank you. Going to join in prayer together in the moment. If you have any anything or anyone you'd like to share together, then please tell me now. Father God, <clears throat> thank you for the lives that you give us, lives to live in your presence, to serve you in any which way we can find. Through preaching, teaching, through caring, through being here steadfastly and regularly for all the different avenues in which we can serve you Father thank you for these opportunities we share, share before you our brothers and sisters our friends and our family and pray that you will hear all the prayers of our hearts now as we join together all our hearts thank you for hearing our prayers Amen Chris is going to be speaking to us and he's based his thoughts um, on John chapter 4. So we're going to read that together and Hannah is going to lead that reading. Thank you. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised but his disciples. <clears throat> when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea 
and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have bought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life, 
so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, before, Chris, before Chris speaks to us, we're going to reflect on some of those words we read by singing from Praise the Lord number 86. O oh Lord, give me an undivided heart, which echoes the words of Jesus that we worship in spirit and in truth. One of the things that happened to me when I was 18 is still very firmly embedded in my mind and if I think about it I can almost still summon up the, the feelings that, that uh, washed over me when it happened. I saw mountains for the first time in my life. Up until uh, uh, up until that point, I, you know, I was brought up in a council estate in Kent and I suppose the most exotic place I'd ever been to was Margate. And suddenly, um, because of the job I was doing, I was there and there were the Alps. And they were staggering. I can remember looking at those mountains and thinking that they were beautiful and that they were terrifying and that they were wonderful and that I seemed to be tiny, tiny, insignificant person by comparison to the landscape I was looking at. Well, it seems to me that spiritually John's gospel is like that. Uh, John's gospel takes us and confronts us with some of the highest spiritual teachings of the Lord Jesus that we could possibly aspire to. Now I know when I consider the mountains that there are some brave men and women who will look at a mountain and think, yeah, I can get up there. And they have a desire to climb to the top of those mountains. I'm scared of heights. I couldn't get up a ladder. And that's how I feel sometimes about the ideas in John's Gospel. That I'd like to scale the heights, but they scare me. So let's look into John chapter 4, where we're actually confronted with what I consider to be such an awesome and staggering thing that, that I'm not quite sure that I'm going to get it right this morning. But I know that here in Manchester Old Trafford you, you aspire to the teachings in John's Gospel because you've got 
one big truth up there. Here is Jesus uh, from the reading that we had, um, and he comes to Samaria, and you don't need me to tell you about the religious faction between the Jews and the Samaritans. You probably don't need to be reminded that it would be very unusual for a a man to speak to a a woman and possibly uh, a woman with with a past, and it certainly wouldn't be proper for a Jew to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. So we can take that as read. But what's fascinating to me about this is that Jesus offers this woman the heights, the heights that we are called to. And let's look at some of the detail. First of all, it is a very human story. Verse 16, and I'm following a theme here, so if you think I've passed over another great spiritual theme, you're probably right. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands and he whom you now have is not your husband. This is truly said. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she does, see what he's done is he said, Look, I know all about you. And I'm sure he doesn't do that in a judgmental way. He says, Look, I know all about you. I know all about your life. There's something I want to tell you. But she, in the way of of us people, you know, things, look you're a religious teacher, aren't you? So she bowls him a googly. She says, right, answer this really, really difficult theological question then. Um, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So what do you say? So doesn't that happen a lot? That we get distracted by people bowling... Uh, um, sort of hard theological chestnuts at us. It's like, yeah, sort this question out then. And it's a way of diverting the Lord Jesus from, from his knowledge of her. He's interested in her as a person. He's interested in whom she could be, not where she's come from. And you can tell that because of what he says to her next. Because he answers the question in a staggering way, Uh, The spotlight is still on the individual, but boy, is he giving her a new destination. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. So he's sort of not ducking the difficult issue. But this is the thing he says next. You worship, he says, but the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Wow. I mean, he's actually saying to her, look, 
forget all this geographical location stuff. It's not about the place, physical place, where you are, that makes you an acceptable worshipper of God. What God is looking for is for you to be that place. For your heart and, and, and yourself to be that place where God is worshipped. The geography doesn't really matter. And in fact, it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter that you come from Samaria. It doesn't matter that you've had a, a difficult and a checkered life. What he is calling her to look at is the possibility, is to look at the potential, is to look at the aspiration of being a place where God is worshipped within herself. I find that a staggering, an alpine thought. But she's not that easily won because she says, quick diversion, well, Messiah's coming, he'll tell us everything then. So it's like, okay, let's not go too difficult. Um, let's wait for the Messiah to come, he'll sort things out. And then Jesus says something, and I think we should bear this in mind as a, as a sort of Adventist people. Jesus says, I that speak to you am he. Messiah, you're waiting for him to come. He's here already. I am that Messiah. Now don't mistake me, I'm not saying that the second coming won't happen, but I'm saying, Jesus is saying to her, you know, you don't have to wait. You can, I can be your Messiah now. I might be the world's Messiah later, but I could be your Messiah now if you want. And that's another big issue, it seems to me, another huge thing that he's offering this woman. But, here he is, he's saying to this woman, you too can be a place of worship for God. And if that seems like too radical an idea, just turn back a page, even if it doesn't seem like too radical. Would you please turn back another page, because otherwise this exhortation is going to have to stop there. Because what we find is that in John's ordering of the Gospel, Jesus went to Jerusalem, to that very mountain, to that very place, to the very Jerusalem and the temple that the woman was referring to. And he goes in there and he does something radical. You know how it is in John chapter 2 verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, it says, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, what did he find? He found them selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were at their business and he made a whip of cords and he drove out the animals and the people who sold and he turned over the, the money changers' tables and upset all the money and said, verse 16, Take these things away, you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. In other gospel records it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was angry and grieved at what was going on because 
the court of the Gentiles in that temple had been turned over to a kind of shopping mall. Now what, the, the, I mean we could go into all kinds of details about who was making money out of who and what, but, but it seems to me that the big issue here, the main thrust of what Jesus is saying is that this temple was made as a place where people could come and meet God. And you've put a litter of, of commerce in the way. This court of the Gentiles was the place where, as Isaiah says, foreigners who love and honour the Lord will come and be joyful in his house. So this was to be a place where everybody could come, no matter where they were coming from, they could still worship. And the geographical location was not an issue. If they loved God and honoured him in their hearts, they were part and parcel of that place, that temple where God is honoured. He's quoting, when he says a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah, who was very, very hot on the temple and the fact that people were coming in completely unrepentant and imagining that they, they could worship God and go back to a life that was not honouring God. The commerce of the world had pushed itself into the space that was once set apart as a sanctuary for sincere people to seek God. As I said, what God seems to be interested in is that his sanctuary is a mobile sanctuary. It's the place within the person where he is worshipped. And this is done par excellence. This is, this is the highest possible achievement of it when we look at what happens next. The people who run the temple are outraged that Jesus has upset things such a, in such a fashion. And he is indicted by them. What sign do you have for doing this, they want to know. Where's your authority to come in here like this, overturning things? And Jesus, verse 19 of John chapter 2, says this, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. This is a non-answer. They, they are astonished because they are taking him literally and thinking, well, this, is, this temple took took 46 years to build and you're going to what? build it in, in three days don't, absolutely ridiculous so they wouldn't take him seriously but John with this monumental insight that he has with this alpine uh, view of the gospel message says this but he spoke of the temple of his body when he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So John's looking back and thinking, that's what he meant. That when they destroyed his body on the cross, after three days, God raised him from the dead. And he was still that mobile sanctuary. This time, even more mobile, because Jesus, when he ascended, became a life-giving spirit. So he could be everywhere present where God is worshipped. So there's the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry 
a mobile sanctuary, a tabernacle for God, a place where the Father could be seen in action, a place where the Father could be heard in word, a place where people could look upon the Lord Jesus and see, this is the Father. Now we know what God is like. But this aspiration that Jesus puts before the Samaritan woman is, you too can be a place where God can have a sanctuary. You too can be the place where God is worshipped in spirit and in truth in you. And as a mobile sanctuary, if you'll excuse the, the poor expression, you too can take the meeting place of God and man around the world with you in your life. You too can invite people in to worship the God who is at your heart. If you think that's perhaps a little off-key, let me turn to somebody wiser than I, the Apostle Paul. Let me give you two quotes from Corinthians. Um, the first one is in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, and it reads like this. Do you not know that you, plural, the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and that temple, you, plural, are. So, the church in Corinth was a temple of the living God. He also says, over the page in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, when he's talking about individuals' conduct and how people live their lives as Christians, he says, verse 18, shun immorality. Every sin which a man commits outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And now he's talking to individuals. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And suddenly you realise that what sanctifies the individual believer is the sacrifice of Christ. You are not your own. This patch of humanity which is you this heart, which is yours, has been purchased by the blood and the death and the life of the Lord Jesus so that you too can become a sanctuary to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now the exhortation is this. Jesus held out to the woman from Samaria, no matter what her past was like, knowing her intimately better than she actually cared for, actually, was still saying to her, look, you who are here now, 
needn't be worried about the here and now. Aspire to be what you can be in God's sight. Aspire to be a worshipper in spirit and in truth. Aspire to be a dwelling place of God in your life now and in the age to come when God, and this is another big, big, big alpine issue, when God will be all and in all. Can't get my head around that one. But, here's the exhortation as we share bread and wine together. It's one of the marks of Jesus' messiahship that he comes into the temple, the temple that's been built, and he looks round and what he's grieved at, he wants out because the sanctuary needs to be cleansed. So the exhortation is this for you and for me, but probably especially for me. If I aspire and desire to be that heart sanctuary that God wants where he's worshipped in spirit and in truth, if he wants me to be that mobile sanctuary that his son was among the people of this earth. When he visits me in my meditation this morning to cleanse that sanctuary, what is he going to say? Get rid of. Get that out. There's no place for that. And it's not necessarily that he's angry but he is zealous is what John says he's passionate he wants so much more for us than generally we we want for ourselves I turn quite often to a prayer of dedication. Uh, Solomon, it was, wasn't it, who dedicated the first temple that, that man was allowed to build. And when he's prayed that that temple should be a place where anyone can come to offer worship to God, and when it's been dedicated and the glory has, has descended, God answers his prayer. And he, he, he answers it in this way. And I take comfort from this prayer. And I want to make it mine. This is what God says about his people, his sanctuary, those who worship in spirit and in truth. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Our share in Christ's sacrifice reminds us of what we're called to and the way to get there 
and by his grace he will cleanse and furnish and finish the good work that he has begun in each one of us. Amen. Chris said that Jesus is not interested in where we've come from but in what we can be a place of worship let's worship together by singing this song Lord you have my heart Andrew's going to offer our thanks to the bread Father God our heartfelt prayer is that we will see your glory here and that means we've got to look at ourselves really to see about you dwelling in us we've been thinking about places Lord and we're all in this place here and yet we're all at different places in our journey with you going to take this bread Lord and it reminds us of your love for us and some of us are in places where we wonder what you can see about us that you love it's a great comfort Lord that you love us all that you can see potential in each one of us sometimes we're all tangled up in what we've done what we think about, what's in our lives. So help us this morning, Lord, to focus on the fact that you want us, your na- our name is written on your hands, you love us, you can see potential in us. Help us to think on that and to try and clear out some of the stuff that gets in the way so that truly your glory will be here and it will be in us as a living church with a purpose to let other people benefit from the hope that we have in you help us to be ready for the return of Jesus and to show that hope and readiness in the way we live our lives so we thank you Lord for caring for us and we pray that you will Bless us now as we take this bread. In Jesus' name, Amen. This bread gives us an alpine view, a view of awe-inspiring beauty. Lord God, our Father, the creator of all the mountains that we see and the creator of our alpine view, we come to you now with undivided hearts and we worship you today in spirit and in truth we may feel today that we are so small and insignificant when we think of your plans but we also know that because of your love given to us and because we are all part of your purpose we can have confidence You look into our hearts today and you know us better than ourselves and you can see that future potential that we have. And one reason why we are here today is to remember you, Lord Jesus, 
And as we think about this cup of wine and all that it means to us, we remember you, Lord Jesus, and we are staggered by your life, your death, and your resurrection. Help us all to reflect on this as we drink this cup together. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Chris gave us the picture of Jesus washing our sanctuary, not in a way that condemns, but to rid of us, rid of, rid us of all the things that hold us back. And as our Proverbs reading says, he who loves a pure heart, whose speech is gracious, will have the king for his friend. We are washed clean. We're going to close in prayer uh, through Richard after we've sung from the hymn book number 330. I heard the voice of Jesus say, and verse 2 says, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down, drink and live. I came to Jesus, and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Father God, thank you for revealing to us that you do not live in this building in a temple long ago in Jerusalem but that you live in the temples of our hearts and that you are with us wherever we go we thank you for sending us the gift of your Holy Spirit we pray that these bodies and hearts and minds that you have given us and blessed us with will be shaped and transformed as good places for you to live. Help us, Father, to drive out from our hearts all that taints, all that corrupts, all that fills these temples with things that you do not want or need. And in our lifetimes of transformation, bring us truly home, home to be with you and our Lord Jesus by the power of your Spirit in your kingdom that will last forever. Amen.